please stand for the reading of God's word. Our passage is Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. <clears throat> Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. The whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Grace. Some passages uh, preach themselves. I feel like we should pray and have a good day. Um, give me one second here. I know some of you, and I don't know most of you well, but I want you to imagine that my wife Lisa and I invited you over for dinner one night. And at the table would be um, myself, my wife, you, our three kids. And I want you to imagine that the first thing that happens when we sit down is we bring out like a salad. And my youngest, Haddon, four years old, says, I don't like salad. And you probably giggle because kids, you know. But I say, oh my gosh, I forgot. I am so, so sorry. Um, you don't have to have salad. I mean, uh, why don't you just, but we have, we have guests, so why don't you just stay, you know, and we can talk to our guests. I don't like guests, he says. <laughs> exactly. And then I say, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Um, well, I'll tell you what. Um, do you want to, we can call you back when, when, when bread and some other things come out. Would that... Would you like that? I don't want you to have to deal with the salad if you don't like the salad or the guests. <laughs> no offense. Um, and, uh, and I say, Haddon, what would, what would you like to do? He says, I, I want to paint. I'm like, okay. Where do you want to paint? On the walls. 
just on the walls. Amazing. He's a real free spirit. We like to just let this kid be. Uh, honey, could you get hat in the paints? All right. Take care, buddy. We'll see you a little bit later. Thanks. We have our salad. You're like, that was a little weird. And the bread comes out. My son John loves bread. And so I said, John, would you like a, a piece of bread? He's like, I'd like seven pieces of bread. And I'm like, you got it, buddy. You're the bread king. And I have John reach his hand and take out seven pieces of bread, real nice thick slices of sourdough. And then he looks at it and he says, is there butter on this bread? I say, oh, shoot. Honey, we buttered the bread, didn't we? He's like, I don't like butter on the bread. I'm like, oh, my gosh. How embarrassing. <laughs> Buddy, I'm so sorry. I, I knew that, but I like, forgot. I don't know how I forgot. Guests, you know how guests you throw things off a little bit. No offense. Um, I'll tell you what, uh, honey, let's get some bread without butter for John. Oh, there is no more bread. Oh, shoot. Maybe I could run to the store. Wait a minute. Let me think. The store is not open. No, not that store. It'd be a little far. Hmm. I'll tell you what, I will cut off the top layer of the bread where the butter is because it hasn't actually melted through yet. Would you like that, John? And he says, yes, that's fine. <laughs> so I serve it up. I cut slices of this bread and recut, and I serve him seven pieces of bread. And you're thinking to yourself, that's a little weird. And I'm thinking, this is the greatest thing ever. Then out comes the broccoli. And I say, John, Violet, you guys want broccoli? Violet says, sure. John says, no way. Hate vegetables. I look at you over here. You're over here. I look at you and I say, he hasn't had a vegetable in two years. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? I haven't had a vegetable in seven. It's amazing to be a grown-up. Things we can do. All right, buddy, I'll tell you what. When you're done with the bread, you go, you go hang out with Haddon. You want to paint? You don't want to paint. You want to watch something? What do you want to watch? You want to watch the hockey game? All right, I'll set you up in the living room in just a second with the hockey game. You tell me when, okay? Anyways, so we go back to the dinner. Everything's totally normal. And uh, my daughter... <laughs> My daughter looks at uh, the chicken that comes out, and she, she enjoys a, a good piece of chicken. But there's little, son of a gun, there's little green, what is it, cilantro on the chicken? She doesn't like the green things on the chicken. Ah, silly dad. So I, uh, I start to meticulously pick the green cilantro off of the chicken, as you would yourself if you loved your child, right? Um, <laughs> And eventually, I think we're good, and she kind of gives me the thumbs up. I'm like, all right, baby, I love you, sweetheart. Uh, and then I, oh, I forgot, and I set up John with the game and everything in the living room. He's good. Haddon's painting on the walls, comes in just covered in paint. I'm like, what room are you in? He's like, all the rooms. I'm like, wow, what a night. What a great, what a great night. He's a real free spirit. It's a free-range parenting. You've got to read the book. Um, and as we're eating, and I start to get to know you, what, what was your, uh, where are you guys from? Like, where do you actually live? I uh, just saw you at church that one time. Uh, you know, we're just starting to talk, and I hear John in the living room shout out, because we scored. We as the Colorado Avalanche hockey team. It's no big deal. Uh, Southern California, I know, we're, we're struggling. But LA's not bad. Um, but I hear John cry out, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry to interrupt you. I am going to, I'm actually, I'm going to actually go watch the game with John. I'm just going to take, do you guys mind? I'm sorry. Uh, and I, I'm, I just, I love hockey, and it's kind of how we bond and stuff. And you don't mind if I bond with my son, right? Like, that would be crazy if you minded that. So I, I take my plate, and I go to the living room. As I leave with my plate, I say, it was awesome having you here. Like, really. Um, if, if you're, for whatever reason, if you're gone by the time the game's over, I just, I don't know, I just feel like there's something here. I feel like 
I feel like we should have you back. I guess that's what I'm saying. I feel like we could really be good friends. There's just like something here. Anyway, like we don't have to figure it out now. But if I don't see you, okay, would love to see you again. Okay, have a good night. I mean, you know, maybe it's just gentle parenting. You know, I don't know, I don't know what that was. But if you were driving home, you were like, huh, that was a little weird. And you might be like, well, they, they were nice, you know. They weren't upset or anything. I mean, like, yeah, they're just loving. They're very loving. But it would be a little strange, right, if you experienced that in someone's home with a family. It would also be strange if you experienced that at a church. In the book of Acts, you have this moment when the Spirit falls on everybody in Acts chapter 2. And there's just this incredible rush of all the things. People are just being radically converted out of their old lives. They're just all of a sudden realizing, we killed Christ. What do we do to be saved? And Peter's preaching, and everything begins to move. And if you read Acts 2, you read Acts 4, there is something that happens in that early moments of the church where there's just this flush of love and joy and unity. It says they had everything in common, man. Every meal, every time, all the time, in the same rooms, in the houses, door to door. Anybody who had need, they took care of them. Everybody saw everybody. Everybody felt a part of this thing that was happening. There was real unity in the body. And you don't get to Acts 6 before there's something else. There's a little fracture. There's a little difference. Hellenistic Jews, OG Jerusalem Jews, you know, like kind of, hey, I feel like uh, love our church. I love it. Um, but I feel like you guys are uh, giving more bread to the, uh, to the Hebrew Jews. And uh, the Hellenistic, you know, I just feel like, I don't know, I just feel like there's a thing there. It's not two chapters after you hear the first flush of golden glow and unity. The same thing seems to happen everywhere the gospel goes. In the city of Antioch, it's so bad. The city of Antioch is the first place where they called them Christians. It's the first sort of major city outside of the beaten path that sort of the church takes root, the gospel takes root, and the community springs up. But it's also the same place in Galatians 2 where Paul says, yeah, there's a weird thing that happened. We were having this meal, and the Gentiles, who are now able to be saved, um, well, Peter was there, and he was eating with us. We were all eating together. And then like a group from Jerusalem showed up, and Peter felt like weird and embarrassed, and he changed the table. Instead of eating with the Gentile Christians, he, he made sure he was eating with the Jewish Christians. And Paul's like, yeah, I had to confront him to his face. It's like a weirdly weird thing that he would like, you know, eat at a separate table because he felt some weird sort of stigma or something. What you see in the early years of the church is that there is this division and fracture, so much so that if you look at Ephesians 3, if you have your Bible, Paul says the most incredible thing that's happening in the world in the first century after the resurrection of Christ is this mystery that has been revealed, verse 2. Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. What's the mystery? This mystery is... That through the gospel, Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together in the promised in Christ Jesus. That is a mystery no one was expecting. You could say there were hints in the prophets, even Jesus' own words, when I am lifted up, all people will be drawn to me. 
But even in Jesus' ministry, it's Israel-focused, intentionally, very intentionally. Gentile woman's like, Lord, please. He's like, ah, dogs, I don't know. Gentiles, hmm. He goes all in as Israel's Messiah before it becomes clear to everybody that that salvation and that Christ is also the Christ and salvation for the Gentiles. That, Paul says, is the, the mystery that God revealed became the calling card of his ministry. He would go to synagogue after synagogue and preach the gospel, and it would not be received largely. And eventually, he'd be asked to leave the synagogue. So he'd preach outside the synagogue, and all of a sudden, Gentiles started hearing the gospel and getting saved. And as I say, early days, you felt this yourself. I guarantee it on some level. When you're first saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's a radical thing. It is a radical thing. In Ephesus, where this letter is written to, it's a radical thing. Everybody in that place getting converted out of their paganism, they start burning their magic books, which the text says, and you may know, is millions and millions of dollars. Hevel. Just chucking it on the fire, saying, Jesus is Lord. I'm starting a whole new life now. That rush, that glow, has some kind of incredible, that is the unity of the Spirit as grace falls in the early moments of conversion and the founding of a church. And you feel at that moment, I might not know you, but you're my brother and sister in Christ. And you just feel it. I don't know if you've ever been to a different country, a different state, gone into a church you've never been in before, and you hear them singing songs. And you're like, son of a gun, if this isn't the people of God, these are my brothers and my sisters. I remember being in Paris in this beautiful little chapel at the top of Montmartre, and they were singing in French, and I only know a little French. I don't know a lot of French, and they were singing in French hymns and things like this, and I walked in that place, and I felt like, these are my brothers and these are my sisters. It's an astonishing feeling when the unity of the Spirit erupts in the life of someone who's changing, who's starting something new, who's coming out of one life, out of an old family of origin narrative into something brand new, the family of faith and the family of God. It's an incredible thing. Brother, sister... And then something happens. You find out that the call of radical discipleship is actually a call in the world's eyes to an ordinary, simple, quiet, mundane life. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. To work with your hands just as we taught you. Why? So that your neighbors will see your witness patiently, slowly, walk in the neighborhoods over years and realize the love of God. Because the Christian life doesn't go from drama to drama to drama to drama, what we feel and we realize in our experience is that that early rush, the unity of the Spirit, gets tested early. When you go back to your job, you go back to your family of origin, like you don't actually get to escape them, spoiler, um, <laughs> you just get a new family as well, you know, <laughs> but you still got like Thanksgiving, you still got to like, have your life. And you know, everybody at first when you get saved, you're like, I'll be a missionary, Jesus, let's go. And he's like, be a missionary to Costa Mesa. And you're like, no, <laughs> that's so boring. Oh no, but there's so many churches here already. And he's like, yes, yeah, stay. And you're like, shoot. He's like, I'll leave my job, I'll leave anything. He's like, stay at your job. You're like, no, <laughs> it's so boring. Not my job, if any of you are families. Uh, <laughs> the children are amazing. Uh, it's the most stimulating thing I've ever done. Um, but you go back to your life, and then Acts 6 starts to happen. I'll say worse, Acts 15 starts to happen. There's an absolute crisis in the early church. 
It's like, can Gentiles really be saved? Are they really co-equal heirs? Are they really brothers and sisters? Or is that just that first rush of feeling? Because when it comes to table fellowship, I don't know if you know what they eat, but it's not what we're supposed to eat. And so Acts 15 happens. It's the most important chapter maybe in the New Testament in some basic level because it's the, the moment at which either the church becomes divided forever or unified in the power of the Holy Spirit. James is leading the church at the time. He says, uh, debates have been heard. We need to pray. And because they pray, they discern in the power of the Holy Spirit the wisdom and the spiritual understanding God gives. Book of James. They discern that Gentiles are co-equal heirs of salvation, that the mystery Paul talks about in Ephesians 3 and 4, etc., is the mystery revealed by God, not by Paul coming up with an idea because those are the only people who listen to him. Because that's the level of suspicion a lot of people have about Paul at that moment. Acts 15 pivots. Church is going to be unified. But you could feel between Acts 2, 4, 6, 15, you could feel how unbelievably difficult that is. And you can understand why in the first verses of, Acts, of Ephesians 4, he says in verse 3, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. Because it falls from heaven. And you feel it in a church in France. And then you go back to your life. And the differences and the cracks and everything else starts to show again. Or you go to this church. And at first when you come to this church, it's like, I don't know, a refuge from a storm. It's like, <gasps> the clear teaching of the word. <gasps> the sourdough is cooking. This is 122-year-old yeast. This is great stuff, Dave. And you love it. You tell everyone about it. Oh, my gosh. Finally found a church teaching the word clearly with depth. It's like amazing. And then, after a little while, it's normal. You go back to your life. You keep coming to church, but, you know, things happen. Paul says, man, you got to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. you got to work diligently at this because it won't be natural in the way it was in Acts 2 or when you were baptized. When you were baptized, I'll hug anybody. I'm not even a hugger. When I got saved, saved, I was like, let's hug. Let's all hug. They're like, all right, there's too many hugs. I'm like, okay, yeah, I've never hugged before, so... This is all new to me. Brother, sister, who are you? I'm not even a Christian. I don't care, you know. Maybe someday. <laughs> Be diligent. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. In a church setting, uh, Christina was talking about this a week or so ago. You know, we're not saved as individuals. We're saved sort of like together for each other. There's no real concept of an individual Christian in the, in the New Testament. There's just the body. And like a wandering toe, you know, if that's your thing. I meet God on the waves. And it's like, all right, everybody's limping because you're meeting God on the waves on Sunday morning. We can't do what we're supposed to do. Everybody in the New Testament is in some kind of church. They all heard the gospel from another human being. They didn't download a podcast from the sky. They heard it from the lips of a human being. They were brought into it. They had questions with other human beings. They, how do we live this life with other human beings? But you've got to make every effort. And so in the context of the church, as you see in Acts 6, or, you, or the leadership would see here, we, as pastors, we would see the cracks, we would see those things first, or at least we would see those things. And so what happened, at least in the life of the contemporary church, okay, let's leave the first century for a moment. In the life of the contemporary church in America, we came up with strategies. We were like, shoot, it's really hard to keep people together over a long period of time. You know how difficult that is? 
it's not as hard to like rotate them out and keep like the numbers similar, although that even itself is a challenge, but to actually keep the same group of people together for decades, it's extremely difficult. And so in the 80s, we looked at like organizations and businesses and we said, how do you retain employees? How do you, how do you keep customers brand loyal? How do you, and we started with some different strategies. I'm just gonna give you two of the popular ones. This is somewhat my language. You can take it or leave it, I guess, if it works. Uh, the first strategy, especially in Southern California, was uh, LCD Church, is what I'm going to call it, Lowest Common Denominator Church. So teach in a way that's positive, hopeful, inspiring, but, but make sure there's no broccoli on the table. Because nobody, I don't care who you are, you're like, well, with salt. I'm like, that means it's not broccoli, though. That, <laughs> with butter <laughs> in an ocean of ranch, that ain't broccoli. That's ranch with bits, you know, like kibbles and ranch. Um, so what we did was you're like, okay, uh, lowest common denominator church. We'll, we'll preach in such a way, we'll teach in such a way, and we'll provide services and goods in such a way that who could be offended? Why would anyone want to leave? We'll do the best child care. It'll be like a break for the parents. Like, it's just awesome. It's like, if Bluey were Christian, it's like that is the Sunday school. You're just like, oh, my gosh, yes. We should all have been raised by a cartoon dog from Australia. I feel that sometimes in my spirit. And so lowest common denominator church was like a product of Southern California, but also places like Willow Creek, you know. And, and then once that got going and it worked, or at least like it boomed, got exported all over the world. And so that model of church, even if you haven't been a part of like that sort of mega, you have, because almost every pastor in the last 30 or 40 years was like, oh, what if? What if? So every like 150-person church wanted to be an LCD mega church. Every thousand person church was like, oh man, we're on the cusp of an article, you know, <laughs> in Christianity today, or wherever they make articles for those things. We're on the cusp of something. Um, you know, you would get excited because you would see it work. It would seem to work in some way, the LCD church. Or, and sometimes, these are strategies, another way of trying to keep people together, besides providing just a bunch of goods and services and an inoffensive message is what I'm going to call HPD Church, Highest Passion Denominator Church. Highest Passion. Now, in the banal or sort of like kind way, this would be a church that's like really, really good with affinity groups. So, okay, you know what people bond over? What they've already bonded over. You know, people who love hockey. People who love the Colorado Avalanche. People who love the Kings or the Ducks or people who love the Lakers, right? Find, here's what we could do. Find what people already bond over and then make like a church group out of that. And, and sometimes it'd get crazy, like really specialized. And it'd be like mothers of two-year-olds with attached earlobes. And you'd be like, that's really interesting. Never thought of that. Where do the free lobes go? Oh, down the hall. Down the hall. We're not excluding anyone, but down the hall. <laughs> You're like, oh. It's that weird thing where you meet a lefty and they're like, they got lefty pride. They're like, what are you, a righty? normie like everybody else <laughs> anyways so you get these really fine slices you're like wow you can find a group for everything why because if i'm a mother of a two-year-old with an attached earlobe i'm gonna be like oh my gosh susan do you know what this is like you do 
Oh, it's this inbuilt experience connector, right? It's like we are already in the exact same phase of life with the exact same kind of child, potentially. And so we have the exact same issues, challenges, problems, stresses. We're getting the exact same amount of sleep, none. We're doing all the same things. And so you just look at this person with sallow face and pale skin, and you say, that's unity. That's man-made unity. That's the unity of the LCD church. It looks like unity, but it's made by people. We got to be real careful with affinity groups because that's not the picture in the Bible of the church. Um, it could be everyone's having dinner in a different room. Like a lot of times we'll leave space to a Hispanic church, but we won't actually know the Hispanic church. We'll just leave space to the Hispanic church. And it's just an interesting question. Like, where is that? It might be Acts 6, but they have to like figure it out. Affinity groups can be dangerous because they're so obviously peers, and so you immediately connect. Men who like to rock climb at 4.30 on Tuesdays or whatever. You're just like, oh, you too? <laughs> I thought I was the only one. Um, it feels, it hits strong. In the more negative aspect, I would call them hostility groups. And let's just be perfectly honest. A lot of churches grew in this area during COVID because they rallied around hostility the church is essential. The government can't tell us what to do. Yeah, people from your neighborhood would never go to church where I like, heard that message. Like, I already agree with that. Where's your church? Yeah. Churches grew like crazy that went in on the hostility side of things. It's pretty intense, passion, right? Passion works in a lot of different ways. And we know this. If you know anything about life online, that's where your attention is drawn for the longest amount of time is whatever you can get angry about. That's what you'll stare at for the longest. So it monetizes well. It rallies quickly. It looks to unify in an incredibly electric way, passionate way. But that's man-made. The reason I know is because the scripture says gentleness, kindness, goodness, self-control. That that's the mark of the Spirit's presence. So if there's unity of the Spirit, we all would be becoming more gentle. Difficult to get a hostility group around gentleness. You're ruining the culture, but I love you anyway. I just love you. I love you, but you're ruining the culture. But I love you, but you're the problem with everything. It's like, all right. It's difficult to pull that off with the fruit of the Spirit. So LCD church, HPD church, whatever, or a variety in between, pick your poison or pick your past. This is the challenge, is we try to do unity on other terms because it's so difficult to make every effort to be diligent to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Because that requires things out of your control that you can't strategize. It just requires prayer, requires you, it turns out, maturing. What's wild about this passage is that the unity that Paul is talking about only comes if the people are growing up. If the people are maturing, unity and maturity in Ephesians 4 cannot be separated. This is why it's tough. This is why if you're trying to build something, if you're trying to make something happen, you have to kind of like pretend that away because maturity is a great threat to both of those strategies for obvious reasons. Maturity in an LCD church is going to have the LCD church. It's going to cut it in half because you're going to hear things you don't want to hear. They're going to be like, broccoli, bro broccoli again? Do you know how many times you're supposed to eat vegetables in a day? A lot. <laughs> More than most of you want to. That's the truth. Okay? But, like, if you're going to grow, if you're going to mature, right, you have to have certain things. You, well, you guys have been in James. You know exactly what broccoli tastes like. 
LCD church will have things. It'll, it'll minimize things. It'll do the opposite of what you're trying to do by building something. It'll actually prune things down because it's going to provide challenges to people. It's going to put stuff that doesn't taste good on the front end, right? It's going to be like, oh, I don't know what this is. I don't like this. I like to feel good when I leave church. I don't know what that was. Maturity also challenges the other kind, because as I said, if maturity is gentleness, hostility is immaturity. I'll tell the government where to stick it is immaturity. Right? Like that's the, that's the challenge there is it feels ennobling, it feels like you have conviction, it feels like you're grounded in something, and it might be decades of you experiencing and thinking certain things. They're just not Jesus things. And maturity is being able to discern what? What the Spirit does. Dividing with the Word, flesh, and Spirit. Whatever's happening in the human heart, even maybe right now, between bone and marrow. Find margins between your convictions for America being a godly country and the actual teachings of Jesus that you are called to obey. Those are fine margins, depending on where you are, what your history is. And that isn't even for me to parse that exactly. It's for, for the Spirit to parse that in our hearts. But it really challenges us, because maturity looks like Jesus, and Jesus doesn't hate his enemies. And so it totally ruins the plan. The strategy falls apart when we're like, oh, we need to get together and love those people. We need to pray for those who we feel persecuted by. We need to go out of our way to do acts of good service to those who we feel are ruining this country. It just doesn't play that strategy well. Maturity is a threat to both kinds of strategies for obvious reasons. And so what's supposed to happen in the life of a church, if we're just talking about the life of a church, is you're supposed to have seasons of gathering and seasons of harvesting. The teaching ministry at any church, and Dave is a great teacher, a, a, a really, this is why many of you like came here, Dave is a great teacher. One of the reasons he is is because he has been given to you as a gift from the Holy Spirit. And so it's his responsibility with the other pastors to discern seasons of gathering and seasons of harvesting. If you gather, 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 that fruit will spoil have you ever gone apple picking and seen all that stuff on the ground? You're like, what the heck? Look at all these apples. They're so sad. They're all worm-eaten and infested. Where was all these apples? And there's only a few left because they weren't picked in time. They weren't harvested. So if you gather only, LCD, if you gather only, whatever, HP, if you just keep gathering, things get rotten. Things spoil. You have to harvest so when Dave, I'm just going to take a little liberty here. He can tell you next week if you're like, that's not true. <laughs> um, when Dave moves to the book of James, that's harvest season. I would say the Embodied series is a gathering text because it's a general interest topic that everyone's like, this is tough, and I got friends, or I have a daughter, or I have a cousin, or I have somebody, and I don't know what to do. And I don't know how to think about it myself or talk about it in my own home. So it's a very, like, everybody's kind of like, and because it's done maturely with gentleness, invitation, the love of Christ, it doesn't actually harvest, it just sort of teaches. It says, let's just see what the scripture says about the human body and about our place in it and what we're doing here. A book like James, though, is like, what, last week or whatever? Hevel, 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 hevel. You know, it's like, your whole life is vapor, it's nothing. Who do you think you are? You know? It's like, James is really intense, it's just a huge sigh, just, right? But those cycles happen in the life of a church if it's well-led. 
Because you have to see if what the Lord was doing in the hearts of the people actually is bearing fruit. And the only way you can do that is by starting to test and gather it in. It's just like harvest time. And so the Spirit has to do that. Count it all joy, brothers and sisters, when you experience various trials of any kind, right? Some of us are going through moments of suffering, and the Lord is like, I just want to see if seven years of really good teaching did anything to how you respond to that based on how you responded to that seven years ago. I just want to see if there's any growth. Is there maturity here? You just don't know until you have to know. And so the wisdom of pastoral leadership that's spirit-filled and given by God is going to be able to, in the spirit, determine, at least in like a teaching series, can't control the world, but have certain responsibilities, what to lead the people in and through so that it's not just constant gathering, gathering, gathering with a lot of spoiled fruit. That has to happen, that cycle. And it clearly is imitating the life and teaching of Christ himself, who, as you know, every time he saw a crowd, he didn't tell them to go away. But he does click into other modes. He's like, let me tell you a story. And we're all like, oh, cool, Jesus told stories. And Jesus is like, no. I told stories to confuse people who aren't that interested in me. I told stories to draw in people who were on the front foot, were leaning toward me. A parable pushes out people who were there for other reasons, who want to remain warriors to the Christian faith. And it pulls in people who want to be saved. And so he says, I say things hidden from the foundation. There were things that are obscure to make those with eyes not able to see and things with ears not able to hear. And quoting Isaiah and all these other things, the disciples are like, why? This is the worst church growth strategy of all time. And Jesus is like, yeah. And then he's like, oh, I'll do better. He goes, why don't you eat my flesh and drink my blood? It's not even Halloween. And he's just walking around the Galilee like, hey, this is what we're doing now. Everybody leaves at that. They're like, I was down with some of those stories because I can kind of try to interpret them how I want. But... When he said, eat his flesh, I was like waiting for the follow-up. It's an allegory. You know? it's like, he never says that, right? He just says that. And then everyone leaves, and he looks at Peter himself, and he says, are you going to leave too? This is Jesus with a scythe. And Peter says, no. Where else would we go? I think you prayed it this morning. Where else would we go? Only you have the words of eternal life harvest my soul, my mind, my assumptions, my expectations, harvest everything, harvest what, cut down whatever is not of you, rebuild and plant whatever is of you. He has almost no understanding of what Jesus just said. All he says is, no, I'm not leaving. That's harvesting. Whatever you're facing right now, suffering, incredible things you haven't even articulated to your church family, stay, stay with him, cling to him. You don't have to understand it to have maturity. Maturity is found in faith. Faith is trust that there is no better place for you to be in a moment of suffering than at the feet of Christ. Maturity and unity cannot be separated. In Hebrews 5 and 6, you may know the passage well. It's always disturbing, especially as a pastor who wanted to know more. He goes, in Hebrews 5, I think it's Apollos, but we can't say for sure. We have much to say about this. He's, <laughs> he's five chapters into the one of the richest, most sort of densely theological books in the New Testament. We have much to say about this, but it's hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In fact, though, by the time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. 
You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk being still an infant is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death. He's saying basic. Repentance, basic. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, basic. Instruction about cleansing rites, basic. The laying on of hands, basic. The resurrection of the dead, basic. And eternal judgment, basic. Infant, milk. Good starter Christianity. He's like, let's move on. He's like, ah, oh, but you're not ready. And I'm like, ah! Oh. <laughs> you want that nine and three quarters Harry Potter door to open up and be like, ah! Oh. I want another chapter right here where if they were ready, you would have said what? What would you have said? I say that because I don't think this is an immature church. But I say that because the maturity described in Ephesians 4 is not relative to your neighbor. It's relative to Jesus Christ himself. That we would attain the fullness of the measure of the stature of Christ. So I say this with great hope. Because this church doesn't have to be immature to be maturing or to want to be mature. It can be mature wherever you're at. Some of you probably walk with the Lord longer maybe than I've even been alive. And yet the Lord's like, great, but the maturity is the maturity of Christ. The distance that we all have to go is extraordinary. And yet in the life of a church, oftentimes when you kind of become a more seasoned saint or you've been around for a little while, I mean, people will literally say, I, you know, I don't really... I don't really get fed, but I just, I want to serve. I don't really get fed, but I, I just want to serve. Like I've reached sort of, I've like retired a little, I like graduated from church, but I like love everybody. I don't need Sunday morning. Like when Dave preaches, some of you, I guess, I don't know this for sure, but if you're really mature relative to your neighbor, a lot of times we, and I, I'll include myself in this for a second, we listen to sermons just to make sure he doesn't say something wrong. It's like you're spotting him and he's lifting weights. You're like, good, good. All right, well, careful. I've heard this sermon 27 times. Careful, okay? Well, it'll get you. Um, it can be a weird thing where you're like accidentally policing the word of God because you're so familiar with Ephesians 4. And maybe I already I get something you're like, I know that. You know, I don't know. But it's an amazing thing when we're mature relative to our neighbor, we can feel like we're sort of the alumni at church and we're here to just sort of spot everybody. Just be the catcher in the ride. Just make sure no one runs off a cliff, right? Hey, well, e e e e easy, easy there, fella. Easy, right? But if the maturity is the measure of Christ, you could be the greatest swimmer in the world. Like, I don't know, just swim to Catalina. Just be like, what? I would die like 100 feet out, you know? Um, but you just keep going. But the maturity of Christ isn't Catalina. It's like swim from here to Japan. You're not even close. And yet, the invitation isn't, you're not in close and you'll never get there. It's no. The whole purpose of the church is to mature into the fullness of the measure of the stature of Christ. That's actually what God expects of Grace Fellowship, is that you would mature to the fullness of the measure of the stature of Christ himself. So we can't be like, well, he's Jesus, he's not me, so... So we'll make that relative maturity move again. No, it says very clearly that is why he gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. 
That's why he gave you all the gifts of the Spirit, to build up the community of faith, to maintain with all effort the unity of peace and the bond, the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Some of you are like, easy there, son. I got, I got you. I'm like, ah, it's on my neck. Get it off my neck. <laughs> oh, Mark, that's, that's Fiji time. That's what that is. That's Fiji time. Oh, the spirit. Okay, the gifts that he gives, pastors and teachers, and then you. So I want to say, I want to call the gifts of the spirit for the body. I want to call it spiritual friendship because that makes it a little tougher. This, this one's easy in some sense. Um, but the scripture is like, make sure you're not led by false teachers. So you should be able to follow me home and see if I have such a weird dinner with my kids. Like, you should be able to be like, is this guy, what is this guy? <laughs> you're supposed to be able to validate your pastors by knowing their lives. Right? So it isn't just spiritual authority with your eyes closed, but it is spiritual authority. Without spiritual authority in your life, especially if you're older than your pastors or something like this, or you've been walking longer than they've been walking, it's going to be tough for you to submit to spiritual authority. But without spiritual authority, there's not unity and there's not maturity. You can't just be like, yeah, my pastor's here, and then my thoughts are right here, and, you know, and every week we sort of have this little game. You know? um, or I listen to 100 podcasts, and Dave's one of them. It's like if he was given to you by the Spirit of God for your unity and maturity, he's not one of them. But every pastor found out the last few years that all the sermons, all the things we did, turns out you guys have listened to a lot of other things a lot more of the time. And so the fruit that was born was like not gentleness, not kindness, not goodness, not self-control. None of those things started to show up in certain places. And we were just like, oh, no, was that me? <laughs> did I mess that up? Well, in part, maybe, sometimes, but also... Your authorities are vast and broad in a way that is actually dangerous to your soul and keeping you from growing. So in some ways, you have to like receive the gifts, like really receive the gift of a pastor by being like, I trust the Lord. I trust that the Lord has provided this person to help lead our church and direct my spiritual life. And that, that feeling of like not wanting to do that, that very American individualist feeling of like, don't tread on me. Um, Humility. Fruit of the Spirit. Like, if you want to mature, you don't get to be just how you would be if you weren't a Christian. And so, spiritual authority, spiritual friendships, you need the gifts of the body for the purposes of what? We'll bring it back to the table. So that we all mature, he says in Ephesians 4. Let's go down to verse 12. Equip his work. Equip his people for works of service, that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Unity of the faith. Like, we're not supposed to agree to disagree. If the Spirit is moving, we work and we pray, like Acts 15, until we agree to agree. It's much harder because it requires the spirit. It's not agree to disagree. It's not, I, I, like, I like some of the, t I like this, but I don't like that. It's no, that's immature. Why do people change churches? Because they're infants tossed about by every new thing. Well, there's something really popping off over here. This is really exciting. New guy showed up over here. This is exciting teaching over there. You know, we're viewing the church as like, it's, it's a food court instead of a family dinner. So there's, there's something there but if, you, if you're like, this is my church, 
These are my people. Those are my pastors. I trust the Spirit of God moving in this place. And I want to receive what I need to be able to be connected to them more deeply. Not leave the table because I don't like salad or broccoli. But be able to stay there and grow there. What's the point of a family dinner? It's not broccoli. You need broccoli, but it's not. that's not the point. The point of a family dinner is to grow in love as a family sharing life together because the world keeps trying to split us apart with the busyness of life. That's the point of a family dinner. That's the point of the church. The point of the church is not the broccoli of James, although we need the broccoli of James. It's, it's that we would grow into the full, that we would feel the love and communion of the Spirit like when we were worshiping. That's the goal of the church. Is, is that, and it would be crazy if you came to my house and I introduced my kids like I had just met them. But a lot of times at church, we're like churches for evangelism, for new believers. It's actually not. The doors are supposed to be open, but churches for Christians to grow in unity and maturity to the fullness of the measure of the stature of Christ. That's what church is for. And your neighbor can come and visit and hear and be like, oh, that's really interesting. But it would be crazy if you walked in my home and was like, this is my, was it Haddon? Haddon? Haddon. How old are you, Haddon, again? He's four. He's four. Where do you go to school? You you don't go to school yet? Okay. This is my son. Just... But a lot of times with our teaching, our programs and things like that, we just keep resetting. Like we're afraid to grow. Like we're afraid to grow up. And I just want to put that challenge to you. I'll leave you with two things. Just table etiquette. Just dinner table etiquette. I would just encourage you with two things. First, stay at the table. Now, I already talked about people who feel like they graduate from church. Stay at the table. Stay at the table if you're a single woman, 20s, 30s, and you look around and phenomenon, a phenomenon, there are no mature men anywhere. But there are men elsewhere. I have walked with sisters who have left church because it was too difficult to be single for that long. Stay at the table. Stay at the table. I love hockey, Uh, paint's cool, stay at the table. Trust the Lord. Trust the Lord more than you trust your broken heart. Second thing, encourage one another forward. Like I tell my kids, or like, (laughs) I'll be perfectly honest, Lisa tells us, hey, you need broccoli, or you're not even going to be able to poop. Like, you, know, you don't understand how the body works. And I'm like, your mother is right. Well, I'm like trying to sneak the broccoli into the... She's correct, of course, children, you know. Um, but you need encouraged forward, right? What is it, Sam I am, green eggs and ham? I've never tasted this in my life, and I don't like it. It's like, oh, okay, buddy. But you have to eat this. This is our meal. I'm not making three dinners tonight, okay? This is the meal, But let me encourage you. Oh, it's so good. Your taste buds will grow and develop. Trust me, there's things that you just know exist, like really old-aged cheddar cheese that right now you would be horrified by, but somehow I have grown to love as I get older. You know, like all of these things. And wine, children, wine. No, not right now. But someday, children, wine. And wine that what? Is matured. Wine that is matured. Grandparents, encourage your grandchildren to grow in the faith by growing in the faith yourself. Parents, 
Encourage your children to grow in the faith by growing in the faith yourself. I don't think Grace does this. You have a great youth ministry happening here. But a youth-obsessed church really is telling kids, it's not that great to grow up in Christ. We all wish we were you. And what you need to do is you need to pull them forward and say, do you know what flavor country is like? Do you know what can be experienced as you walk with the Lord for decades? Do you know that you just go further up and further into the fullness of the measure of the stature of Christ and that I'm pursuing that and I want to pull you into that? I want to bring you with me. And if at first you're like, this isn't for me, I don't like this, I don't like that, I don't like, I just trust, just trust me, trust me. Taste and see, trust me, trust me, trust me. Pull other people forward into maturity in Christ and unity in Christ because you're stepping forward into maturity and unity in Christ. The only reason I got serious about the Lord and went back to church when I was in my teenage years was a buddy of mine said, hey, let's go over there for a little while. I said, all right. It's incredible what a friend can do by just being like, hey, let's go. I'm going to pick you up. I don't care. I'm going to pick you up there, wherever you're going to be. I don't care. I'm going to pick you up. We're going to go. Let's go. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for Grace family. And I pray that you would be able to apply the words of this sermon in a way that you see fit. I pray that you would bring forth fruit in its season, that people who are hitting that early wall of their church going because life has got more complicated than the sermons they used to hear had enough legs for, I pray that they would stay at the table I pray for the pastors of this church that they would continue to serve rich, full, nutrient-rich meals. That they would continue to pray humble, gentle, hopeful prayers for unity and love and the bond of peace. Lord, I just pray that you would be pleased with this church that you are building by giving them the gifts they need at the moments they need them and by helping them to see one another as necessary for their life of faith. I thank you for this morning. I pray it will be sacred and sealed unto your good work. In Jesus' name, amen.